Hi, and welcome to Cursed Objects with me, Kasha T. And me, Dan Hancock. Hello. Okay, so today we are going to be thinking about uh, cultural capital. And by that, I mean how particular things act as signifiers or status symbols. Counterintuitively, then, I have bought in an object that is definitely not cool. <laughs> I mean, status symbol isn't the first thing that sprung to mind when I saw it, but sure. So it's a 28-disc DVD box set <laughs> of 11 series of the cult ITV murder mystery Poirot. <laughs> The David Suchet version. The David Suchet version, yeah. yeah. That, that one is a status symbol, and I think we'll find out why. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who has never been hungover, almost to the point of death at their parents' house on a Sunday, Poirot is an ITV adaptation of Agatha Christie's hit detective novels. Poirot is, for me, an exemplar of the whodunit genre. Murders are committed, clues are found, and Art Deco aesthetics are enjoyed. I mean, you've got to like love the artwork on the, with the theme <laughs> tune and stuff as well. Like, I genuinely think that's one of the best title sequences in any TV series ever. I, I have to agree with you. And the genre is broadly set uh, in the period between the two world wars or what Caroline Crampton in the She Done It podcast describes as the golden age of murder mystery writing. In fact, the TV programme is mainly set exclusively in the year 1936 but carries some strong kind of late 80s, early 90s TV vibes. Yeah. But the series has actually gone on for 24 years. Holy so. shit, no way. I just think it's so 90s yeah, in my head. Yeah. Like it's this, yeah, this golden age of TV production in its own way. Yeah, like, like heritage TV yeah, in yeah. a way. So it's lasted for, yeah, 24 years from yeah. 89 to, uh, to 2013. That's insane, isn't it? Yeah. But I guess a classic episode uh, would kind of introduce viewers with a soft oboe as images of things like a steam train and a magnifying glass and a pipe <laughs> roll across the screen before we see our smiling hero, Hercule Poirot, a moustached Belgian sleuth and First World War refugee played by the wonderful David Suchet. I think the most important thing, though, about this DVD box set is that I just have never opened it. <laughs> Holy shit, I didn't realise yeah. that was going it's... on all this time. How long have you owned it for? Um, probably about 13 years. Oh my yeah. God. And even though I've never played it, I can't get rid of it. Um, I just don't know. And I haven't actually been able to play a DVD for at least the last five years. Oh, my God. I just haven't had, like, a disc player or whatever you use to play DVDs. I just haven't it's, had one. It's called a DVD player. Yeah, I've, ne I've just never had one. A disc player. A disc player. Sorry, do you have a disc player? Well, it is. <laughs> no, it's a enough. disc, right? No, it's of course, laptops don't come with, DVD, with drives Exactly. Yeah, and, right. and mine hasn't for, like, the last five years, so... Yeah, I guess it is admittedly an unusual thing for a 16-year-old <laughs> to have owned. But as pre precisely, I think, because of the frequency that I'd spend my Sundays hungover, that my um, ex-boyfriend at the time, Sam, decided that he would buy me this DVD box set. Right. And I think kind of like weirdly, I actually think he thought quite little about it. So that kind of sounds a bit strange, but he uh, worked in Waitrose pushing trolleys. And when you're like a 16, 17 year old, that is lucrative business. So you're getting the good pay. Yeah, you're yeah, getting yeah. the good pay pushing those trolleys in Waitrose. So he bought me this DVD set and I'm actually kind of feeling quite anxious about telling you how much it was. Did he tell you how much it was? Uh, no, but I did look it up. Oh, yeah. so venal. Yeah. I mean, I can't exactly remember, but it was between about 100 and 150 pounds. Holy crap. <laughs> oh, my God. But it's the good shit, you know? It's the yeah. good Poirot box set. Like... Oh, I mean, it, it's, it's definitive. It's, you know, essential. It's complete, whatever the word is they attached to it. But yeah, yeah it's, I it's, think it's, it was like box fresh. It had just come out. Like, I mean, and what's mad to me, though, is it's still box fresh because you've never opened the box. <laughs> So like it cost a so there's some some baffling things to unpack here. This cost over a hundred quid at a point when neither you nor your boyfriend could really really had tons of money because you're a teenager. Yeah, but the waitress job. Sure, I understand waitress are like <laughs> the best employer of teenagers. I've heard this as yeah, well. My yeah. girlfriend also ex waitress. But then you love Poirot. Mm. You've got this this kind of really 
kind of glitzy yeah yeah and you've never opened it so yeah I guess despite my love of Poirot I think for me the ritual of putting on a DVD of Poirot just felt wrong like Poirot was as much about Belgian detectives and lay murders as it was about lying on the sofa, eating roasts, and like wishing there was something cold to drink in the fridge that wasn't milk (laughs) at my parents' house. Yeah, what an image you conjure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like really like giving you kind of like a window into the Polish household of the 1990s or like, well, early 2000s. And sometimes... When I go back to my parents' house and Poirot's on the TV, it feels kind of exactly like it did 13 years ago. You know, there's this kind of feeling about it. There's a warm embrace. There's a warm embrace. There's a warm bath feeling of Poirot. But you'll do that, but you won't put the DVD on. I mean, I I really want to know why that is. I think I can maybe guess, but tell me what, what, what sort of... What's wrong about you choosing to do that versus you being sort of assailed with the fact that it is just on TV, it's Sunday, there's a ritualistic? Mm. Is it is that... Yeah, I think the thing is about... I think the issue with the DVD is something that we're going to address in okay. this podcast. So particularly, I don't think it's necessarily the faults of the show, of which there are many, which are the cursed aspect, cursed aspect yeah. of this... <laughs> But I think more so it's the kind of very complex and cursed ways that we consume and engage with various medias. Mm -hmm. So today I want to talk specifically about something I call intertextual translation, Mm -hmm. which is just a really fancy way of thinking about how and why one story gets reproduced into different cultural forms and products. So... And how... Wait, wait. And also how this... Changing form affects the meaning of the story. Okay. So what I'm trying to get at here is that Poirot has been, like, translated cross-texturally. So, like, it's been a book, it's been games, both board games and app games on mobile telephones. Fuck, no way. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been, uh, like, films, obviously. It's been TV programmes, you know, obviously most famously played by David Suchet. Which is the one we're talking about here. Which is the one we're talking about here. So there is, like, a phenomenal amount of change in the ways that it's consumed or the ways in which it's engaged with by users, by people, by audiences. And and your contention with this, what's this phrase again? Intertextual... Intertextual translation. Translation would would hold that if the content is Poirot, the stories yeah. of Poirot written by Agatha Christie, they are fundamentally different and have a different cultural weight in a Hollywood film, say, that is full of like big stars and is distributed to cinemas around the world versus the experience of you watching it on TV in the 90s exactly. on, on a Sunday evening versus you know, me reading like a second-hand paperback that I got at a charity shop yeah, of yeah. The Murder in the Muse, which yeah. is my, my first Poirot. I was a big, big teenage Poirot fan as well, I need to say at this point. Because okay, so like all Poirots are equal, but not all Poirots have the same meaning, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. All Poirots are equal, but not all Poirots are equal. There's something going on here. <laughs> well, there's one thing that Caroline Crampton mentions in the She Done It podcast, which I'm also a big fan Um the David Suchet TV series of Poirot seems to exist entirely in 1936. Mm. And a recent episode of She Done It, Caroline and her guest were talking from the All About Agatha podcast, were talking about how um, the actual books span decades. Yes. They run yeah. until the 1950s and mm-hmm, 60s mm-hmm. And, and 70s. And so there are changing social and cultural mm-hmm, norms that mm-hmm. happen within the books, which you can clearly see as, you know, sort of, you know, society becomes more liberal around mm-hmm. Agatha Christie in terms of divorce, in terms of like the slow dismantling of patriarchy or challenging her own divorce, her own divorce, <laughs> her own disappearance. You know, yeah. but also like you know, kind of queerness within within the story and so on. And yet, the TV series is entirely in this sort of quite sanitized yeah. moment of. I mean, nineteen thirty six was not a chill moment in world history, mm. as we. We'll discuss in numerous other episodes mm. of this podcast. Very unchill. Very a unchill. very unchill decade. Yeah. yeah. And a very unchill year. <laughs> and yet and yet this is the sort of stable and quite calm upper upper middle class, sometimes mm. actually upper class world that that the T V series inhabits fully. Mm. And it's part of that unchangeability, I think, that sort of means that Poirot, the T V series, is so comforting. Mm. Like there's something there's something comforting about how Nothing ever really goes wrong there. 
But of course, things do go wrong. A murder goes wrong. Like yeah. it's not that yeah, nothing yeah, ever goes yeah. wrong. And yet, there's a you know question I was thinking about while I was watching Poro in preparation for this episode. Was like, why is it that we find Poro soothing? Like I will often watch yeah. it on a Sunday. Yeah. Now, if I'm if I'm like really hungover mm. uh, as as a soothing Sunday evening. It's a thing great to do. facilitator of naps. Yeah. It's yeah, a phenomenal yeah, yeah, facilitator yeah. No, of I, naps. I, I absolutely nothing better than falling asleep during a Poro episode. I mean, well, my theory was good. You know, I was gonna suggest that like it's partly that there's this fixedness in a historical moment and social class where it is always 1936 where everyone is always wealthy and swanning around these gorgeous art deco homes Mm. and in that sense it's a bit like Jeeves and Worcester Mm. which I also absolutely love the books and the tv series it's a world where you know every episode every book every you know story there's a problem to be overcome because mm. that's what narrative fiction is. Mm. Um, and that problem is usually a murder. But it's it's like, it's almost like there's nothing ever goes wrong in Poirot world apart from the murder <laughs> is the yeah, central thing. Yeah. But nothing else ever goes wrong. I mean, there'll be bits of betrayal, moments mm. of betrayal and sadness mm. for sure. But Caroline Crampton said on, on She Done It recently, quoting the, the critic Alison Light, that detective fiction is, quote, a literature of convalescence, mm. which I thought was really interesting. Caroline went on to say, the idea being that people were so traumatised and exhausted by the events of the First World War that they were naturally drawn to the ordered black and white world of the murder mystery where the detective has everything under control and in the end, justice is done. After the horrors of war and then the emotional release of the first Armistice Day, it makes complete sense that a form of literature in which the violence was controlled and largely bloodless and the guilty are punished for their crimes would be popular. Mm. So it's this idea of like controlled horror. I mean, this is the same thing that people get out of mm. horror movies as well in a way is that the film ends, mm. you know, like the real traumas in your life, in the world at large, aren't so easy to control mm. as to just turn the off button off. And, and that, you know, with a with a Poirot that like everything's going to be wrapped up, that yeah, he's going to gather sure. everyone he's in the gonna, fucking drawing yeah. and he's going to point at somebody and Jap is going to take him away. And there's something, there is something soothing about that. I think it's just like the stakes are always fairly low. Like the unless show. You get, unless you get murdered. Well, like, well, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like the show's largely about finding out who did it, not about the repercussions of what they did. No, that's true. You, you, know? don't, you don't ever see the bereaved 10 no, years down the line, no, do you? No, really? you don't. You know, the people that yeah. are still like haunted and staring into the distance because, you know, their maid was murdered with a <laughs> candlestick but, or whatever I, it is. It takes place in a world that, like, none of us can really recognise. Like, it happens in social settings that you would never inhabit. Mm -hmm. Like, usually a dinner or a locked room scenario in, like, a country house or on a fancy train where, like, no one can leave. (laughs) You know, like, oh, you know, we're in a snowdrift. No one can leave. And, like, I've never had to sleep on a train for 10 days while, a, a like, a Belgian sleep worked <laughs> out who, who saying, off the horrible guy in one of the cabins. Like, so you're saying this isn't relatable content? <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, like, you know, all the people that are invited, like, I don't know any debutantes. I don't know any colonels. I don't know any vicars. No, there are I mean, precious I, few of them around yeah, in, in my exactly. bit Exactly. But, like, there's something about it that just, like... It's not relatable content. And I think actually there was a lot of like early cultural studies critique around like what was called like heritage TV, Mm. which kind of did this thing, you know, it kind of took you back in time. You know, this phrase of taking you back in time was a really prominent thing in the 1980s, particularly, you know, this idea of like escaping the present world problems, escaping the fact that the 1980s were like decimated by like, well, not just decimated, but there was huge and rapid change in the 1980s, like the beginning of that 1980s. 1980s is unrecognisable by the end of that decade. It's changed this, so completely. And whenever I'm thinking this is like totally a theory off the top of my head, so please forgive how speculative it is. But is this is the is the 80s and perhaps 90s sort of an, a peak of of actual time travel TV and films as well? Yes, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because if you think, okay, Back to the Future, I, the yeah. 80s, because if escaping from the present is a part of it mm. into into a world that is in some ways more challenging, but mm. in some but is nonetheless an escape, you've got Good Night Sweetheart. Oh my god, classic! Life on Mars does that do the same thing? Life on Mars was like way later, though. It was too. Yeah, sure. No, fair point. But it's Life another. It's another like series in which ago, the, the, the the fundamental concept is that mm. somebody escapes the present and yeah. has to face adventures and challenges elsewhere. There's Quantum Leap. It's mm-hmm. another one. 
Yeah, we'll have to come back to you with this theory mm. when we've actually thought about it for more than a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it maybe it all does a kind of similar thing where it invites a sense of peril, but ultimately ends up in kind of feeling like a like a warm bath, basically. Mm. You know, there's something about the ways in which it has this kind of warm and nostalgic glow. And I think maybe mm. sometimes a little bit too much with Poirot because yeah. essentially it's a little bit like God's waiting room. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of like an image that is supported by like adverts for like Stannis lifts and life insurance. Is that right? That are like, if you watch it on ITV3, which no, is the main yeah. place that's like on television. Now. It's yeah, now. Yeah. It's literally just all... Stannis Derlis and life insurance with Michael Parkinson offering you a free pen, you know? That's so interesting. And although there are like... And cruises. Fucking be, cruises. Oh man, even post-COVID. They're, they're, like, <laughs> they're often like young characters who are involved in, you know, people who are making marriages and families and betrayal, betraying mm. one another and therefore like, you know, getting themselves into scrapes that involve murder. But there's also, maybe this is more of a Miss Marple thing, which is obviously Agatha Christie's other great character... That there's a lot of going to seaside towns where people are convalescing, right? Mm. Like literally convalescing in their old age, mm. actually. And there's a, you know, Marple, Miss Marple's such an amazing character because she's so like sharp and fiery and, mm. and quick-witted and, and doesn't take any shit. But, you know, much like Agatha Christie herself, mm. you know, like a bo- She loved East Sussex. Like right. loads of her books are just set in East Sussex. Sort of Rye, Hastings. Yeah, all of that. The, yeah, yeah. You know, like the ABC, I, I mean... Oh, the ABC or, murders, yeah. yeah it always follows the kind of like East Sussex kind of the retirement communities, yeah. though. Yeah, that yeah, a lot yeah. Of the little are. villages, the little like, which is quite interesting when you think about parts of East Sussex now, which are like there is quite a lot of like material deprivation. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, like really, like strong. really poor communities that like live in like Eastbourne and stuff. Hastings too, like yeah. massive, massive drug problems and and problems with unemployment, social, just deep, deep set social problems. Which is a, I mean, and Blackpool has, there's a wonderful article about Blackpool in the FT a couple of years ago about health inequality and how it was, people would sort of go to, in recent years, to Blackpool to, you know, from some of the major cities of the Northwest mm. to change their lives for the better, like mm. because they had bad health, but because Blackpool was so underfunded or rather mm. it's, it's sort of hospitals and city council and social services are so underfunded, can't actually support all of the sick people that are mm. moving there. But it's like a, really horrible post-Fordist, late capitalist inversion of mm. what the reason why a lot of these seaside towns were popular to begin with, yeah. which was that they were, people would go to take the air. Mm. Like, you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of plot lines in Agatha Christie's stories where an invalid, mm. I mean, sometimes it's Poirot, mm. and one episode at least I can think of, it's Poirot who goes yeah. to convalesce. But it's often one of the characters who's gone down to the seaside to improve their health, to restore themselves following the choking kind of fumes and mm. like stressful life of the city mm. you know it's an escape from the city a lot of the time only for them to run into much deeper problems like <laughs> yeah murder yeah <laughs> yeah no it's so interesting when you were saying that it really reminded me of how I don't know whether I saw this in a film my memory's shot to shit or whether it was a conversation I had with someone but like when I was living in Brighton you find like a lot of people that have come from big cities that end up living in Brighton because it's almost like you run into until you can't run anymore until you're <laughs> literally stopped by the physical oh barrier God. of the sea but you hope for some kind of sense of salvation or some kind of haven yeah. in these places because I think that cultural memory of the seaside as being somewhere where you feel good and happy yeah. runs so deep in British yeah. in the British cultural imaginary you know (laughs) like which is why it's so poignant and disturbing to our sense of like selves that that I think are nationally culturally constructed selves Mm. that when you go as a you know youngish like Mm. person in modern Britain to the seaside Mm. seeing those rusting amusement arcades the like fairground that hasn't had its wheels oiled in years and has nobody (laughs) fucking on it you know a deck chair salesman who sold one who's rented out one deck chair there's something so discombobulating about that because it is disturbing exactly Mm. that sense of like there's somewhere to go to be happy to escape to have Mm. you know maybe there is a cultural memory there that this Mm. is where people went for their holidays for the first time for Mm. the vast majority of this country like at a point when only the really the upper middle classes could afford to go on holiday overseas you know these these seaside towns exist 
primarily because they were that haven. Yeah. I think also it's like really like framed by our childhood experiences of those places. Mm. Like they're such strongly evocative places mm. where you can like literally when you think about the seaside, you can like taste the salt in the air. Mm-hmm. You can like taste the ice cream that has like salt in it from the air, but also maybe sand because you've like, <laughs> like touched the sand and then touched the ice cream. But this like, you know, the sound of seagulls, which is so weird because like in my secondary school, we had girls. <laughs> sure, they because come to we London. Had, yeah, yeah, because yeah. we had like a huge litter problem. <laughs> but like, you know, the, the sound of girls at the seaside is like yeah. this particularly evocative thing. And obviously the sea, which is like, this huge all-encompassing thing that you can get really lost in it really centers your vision on that and then mm. often you can't often you don't really see the actual lived experiences of people that are like inhabiting in those places no i mean oftentimes it, people who don't get to make the most of the sea even mm. you know like i went i was in ramsgate in kent recently and a friend who had grown up in the area told me that mom was a teacher at a local school said that some you know this, these are areas with like some of the highest poverty in the country mm. somewhere where brexit was voted for in big numbers where mm. ukip were doing well a lot of deprivation and yeah my, my friend said that like a lot of the poorer kids you know would be like eight or nine years old and had basically never been to the seaside because like the relationship between poverty and lack of mobility mm. is such that you live like a couple of miles inland on a on a like mm. estate that is you know been underfunded and maligned for decades and mm. you're not even benefiting from taking the sea air and mm. like the the things that run along with that but can i also just go back and say that i love that the fact that your equivalent of proust madeline is a an ice cream with sand in it <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say fish and chips and then i was like nah it's all about the ice cream <laughs> when you're a kid it's all about the ice cream you know like yeah. fish and chips yeah but like ice fish cream. and chips is an adult an adult fixation yeah yeah it yeah, really yeah. is and i don't want to like project onto my younger self this like preoccupation with fish and chips sure you know i want to like pay homage to my my younger self did you ever have seasick did you ever have rock though like brighton rock i that's um, just that's that's just a shit sweet i've decided in (laughs) retrospect this is me projecting as an adult it's like it's like hard rock yeah it's not the tastiest my auntie bought me some recently and sorry (laughs) (laughs) it always makes me happy like whenever I own it. It makes me happy, but I never eat it. So, because <laughs> sure. I can't really eat it's it. Just, sugar just because it's just really not pleasant to eat. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's still evocative of something. That's true. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. know, if someone buys me some rock, it will always make me smile. Yeah, in a and way. How, how culturally embedded is it that like the metaphor of it ran through it like a stick of rock yeah it's just part, yeah, it's just yeah, part yeah. of our language yeah completely and none of us ever eat those things <laughs> exactly. but, it, but, it, but it, yeah which makes it all the more impressive really i think what's like really interesting is that we've kind of had this conversation and it really ties into something that i've been thinking about and it's kind of the i kind of want to problematize the idea of nostalgia mm. especially within poirot because you often get that where it's like oh it's just nostalgic oh it's just really nostalgic and yeah it is it is nostalgic and often that's used as a shorthand for a kind of reactionary or kind of rose-tinted framing of the mm. past and there is no doubt that Poirot is rose-tinted yeah you don't, you don't see a lot of like depression era poverty no no occasional exactly. glimmers but not a lot exactly yeah. and you know like you see these fancy trains but you don't see the workers who are like shoveling coal yeah. and like yeah, you know yeah. you don't see I mean you sometimes see the poverty yeah but you you very very rarely encounter it it's usually about the art deco building I mean even Jeeves and Worcester deals with like the rise of fascism and mm. communism and the politics of the 1920s and 30s in a way that I think Poirot doesn't actually I mean you do get little things from Poirot like you do get the fact that like he's Belgian and he is completely he's a refugee yeah yeah, he's a refugee and he's often he's often ostracized by racist English people basically (laughs) you're right it's not an apolitical world no it's just one it's just not very political (laughs) it's not apolitical but it's not it doesn't appear very political I think it's more like the stories that are told and the situations or the locations where those stories Mm. are told are often quite uh, myopic or, yeah. or rather they're, they're one tone they're yeah. one, one sort of demographic yeah and I think also they offer like a particular world view they often offer a glimpse into a particular also like strong 
imperial nostalgia in a way that is actually quite uncomfortable some of the episodes mm, mm. you know even just the like fixation with like egypt and egyptology oh, yeah. is like very yeah. of that period in a way yeah. that is actually quite quite uncomfortable because mm. it, it's really about the ways in which colonialism permeated British cultural interests during that time. So, you know, it's this like fascination with the ancient world of Egypt and then basically taking all of the stuff and putting it in the British which is, Museum. Yeah, which is, how, which is like Britain's construction of a, of a global historical memory in a way through, yeah. through a colonial filter. And, you know, the stuff we grow up learning about when we're seven years old, certainly when I was seven years old, is still largely formed through stuff like ancient Egypt and the Sphinx and Tutankhamun. And so that role that Agatha Christie's helping cement there... Mm was really so pervasive like 70 years later (laughs) yeah yeah like such a yeah like a really particular worldview and it also it's something that I only really got from have you read Roald Dahl's Boy I think it's in Boy or maybe it's in Going Solo but basically what it is is that he's talking about going on this ship to Tanganyika because he like went to work for an oil company in Tanganyika now modern day Tanzania and he meets this like couple that he's like wow, they're like a dying breed and they are like the people of the British Empire. Like, And he just describes them as absolutely like mad, basically, like just like going for runs and like using this language that doesn't make any sense. And Poirot offers a kind of small glimpse into that world as well, which is like this once existed and it's really quite alien. It's really quite strange to engage with it. But Mm. it's also something that I think is kind of invested in the idea of like, is really heavily tied. And all of the things about the trains as well, I'm kind of only really just thinking about this, all the stuff about the trains, the train journey, so like murder on the blue train or like murder on the Orient Express, a train is so linear in its journey, but it's also so incredibly tied to like justifications of colonialism. Like, you know, oh yeah, maybe colonialism was bad, but what about the trains? It's so inherently tied to any of these kind of narratives, I think. I mean, as well as, you know, the very simple fact of like people who, could afford to go on those sort of exploratory expeditions to the Orient and stuff were a very, very specific class of people. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And like the gentleman explorers would have also been, would have had their their fingers in many, (laughs) in many sticky pockets. I I don't think that's the right metaphor. But it was, there was obviously their money came from somewhere. Can I ask you, was Captain Hastings, would he have been a captain in the Boer War? No, that must be, he must be a First World War captain, right? I don't know. We should look into this. Yeah. Interesting. I just thought I'd ask. I don't know. I guess one of the things is, I kind of have been thinking about the problematizing of nostalgia. So I was having this conversation about like the sea and the seaside is quite important because rather than thinking about nostalgia as this kind of like rose tinted reflection on the past, Svetlana Boym, who's this like historian of nostalgia, kind of shows that nostalgia is actually a complex historical phenomenon made up of nostos, meaning home, and alja, meaning longing. So although it often appears as a kind of longing for a historical like space and context, Boyne suggests that it's actually, and I'm quoting here, it's actually a yearning of the time of our childhood, the slower rhythms of our dreams. In a broader sense, nostalgia is a rebellion against the idea of modern time, the time of history and progress. Wow. So I think her use of rebellion is particularly interesting in relation to Poirot specifically, because rather than like nostalgia embodying a kind of simple passive return to the past, it can also have a future oriented and transformative kind of potentialities, perhaps, mm. right? That rather than maintaining progress, reclaim an aspect of a more definable past. So it's not like, oh, we're moving forward, we're trying to do things. It's like, this made sense in this past. It's it's an attempt to reclaim some of the things that were good about that era, I guess. Mm. You know, like the idea of luxury, like the idea of leisure, perhaps. I mean, there are lots of things that we could draw out. That's, that's, as usual, a brilliantly, like, Benjaminian (laughs) approach, isn't it, though? To, like, to say let's look more closely mm. and see what we can assemble from what on the face of it mm. appears to be something that we shouldn't be nostalgic about mm. at all. Mm. But are there things within that have been overlooked here or mm. that have formed part of the narrative of, of a reactionary nostalgia that, you know, constructs a reactionary present. Mm. And in order to construct 
a non-reactionary future, what we should be doing is, is looking back in different ways and at different stories, or indeed trying to draw thing, different things out from yeah. the, these commonly told stories, yeah. which obviously they are commonly told. I mean, the whole reason we're talking about this is because it was fucking huge. You know, mm. it, was, it, it was a very successful primetime ITV1 sort mm. of show. Well, it was an ITV show. There was mm. only an ITV1, you know, mm. like culture is so much more mandated in, from on high mm. at mm. this moment as recently as the 90s, you mm. know, within our lifetimes. And so this is an official history. It is an official story. Mm. But if there are things that we can draw out from it, like, for example, the revolutionary possibility of going to the seaside, and like, you know, the, the, the fact that, like, you know, working class families were, went to places like Rye and Hastings and mm. Blackpool for the first time because they had disposable income for the mm. first time ever, which they never would have had in their, you know, previous, their ancestors as feudal, like, peasants. Mm. I guess one of the things is the idea that nostalgia is, after all, like, also love. It's motivated by rage and frustration at the present. And as such, I think it can be a powerful force for societal transformation. Mm. And I guess one of the things also in... For better in that, or for worse. For better or yeah, for worse, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it. I guess when you look in the kind of aesthetics of Poirot, and this is something that I, I do kind of struggle to reconcile, to take the good with the very obvious kind of like problematics of going back to a period which was massively class stratified yeah 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 yeah, of course of course and you know sometimes I watch it and I'm like am I bad am I a bad like person on the left am I a bad person in general so same concerns people have about watching the crown or whatever yeah 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 am I essentially propping up this cultural hegemony this ideology and the costume drama industrial complex as a result Yeah, I guess so. So like, I don't know, maybe it's kind of like, maybe there's like an uneasy slippage here between the idea of like a kind of historical and traditional past, which we're kind of like, oh, let's reclaim some of those bits in a way that actually isn't that useful. But maybe there are some aspects of it that that we can kind of put to good use. Or maybe we don't need to put it to good use. Maybe again, it's like I'm watching Poirot because I'm hungover and also <laughs> no, <I> absolutely... <laughs> the financial crash is around the corner, <laughs> you know, which it was when my ex-boyfriend bought me this DVD set. Oh, so... man. Is this like the sort of flap of the butterfly wings that started the GFC? Is that what you're saying? Was, I think was so. Was basically your boyfriend spending 120 quid <laughs> on some DVDs that you would never open. <laughs> At that moment, someone in Lehman Brothers was like, do you know what? This has gone too fucking yeah. far. <laughs> 16-year-olds are buying DVDs of Poirot. That's yeah. it. They're just borrowing, you know, personal borrowing is through the roof. You know, <laughs> Wow, I hadn't really thought of it being cursed in this way. But yeah, actually two, it came out 2009, mm. right? That's, yeah, that's when it came out. That's, you know, that's really the, the kind of apex, really, of the crisis bit of the crisis as opposed mm. to the fallout that followed it. But I guess it kind of leads on to another kind of conversation is like, what am I using it for when I watch it now? And I don't know, when I started watching it, it was not the era of like ITV player or iPlayer or Netflix. Those things just didn't really exist. But I feel like now me kind of watching Poirot on the TV as a small rebellion against Netflix is against this kind of ubiquitous streaming culture, which Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with it. I think Mm. it's really useful, but also I hate the person I become. When I watch that many episodes of a series and before I know it, it's 4am and I've lost an entire day. Like I quite like, I quite like the waiting. I quite like the, like have watch an episode next week. It's frustrating. Did, but Yeah. Do, I mean, did you, so we're quite different ages, which I think is going to become relevant in this conversation about like how these formats changed. So for you, like were there TV series that you watched pre web 2.0, pre streaming pre-Spotify, pre-Netflix, etc. Were there TV series you watched where you were like hanging on tenterhooks for next week's episodes? So this happened to me with, I'm sure, several things, but the one that most brings to mind because it's so fucking cliffhanger-driven was 24 when mm. it was first on, which I would watch with my friends in my mate's kind of like attic room. Mm. And then you end with this like cliffhanger where, oh my God, Jack Bauer's definitely dead this time, mm. which he obviously wasn't ever. <laughs> Um, and then having to wait an entire week is something that I can totally see how it's easy to... I mean, we're now talking about meta-nostalgia, really, because, mm. like, or nostalgia for that feeling, mm. as opposed to the content of the show, of nostalgia for that format. Mm. I mean, I don't really have that as much, but you seem to. You seem to, like, have more of a... Even though you're younger than me and, like, 
were less inculcated into this world of like TV is on when it's on. Yeah. And you cannot fuck with that. Yeah. Short well, like, complex VHS like timers and stuff. The TV was really, really big. It played a really, really important role in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it was always on in our house. Yeah. And like, it's crazy. Like my cousin, for example, my nieces and nephews don't watch TV in the week. They only watch it at weekends and they'll mm. watch like CBBS. When I was growing up, the TV was on almost always. And to be at the whims of the television schedule was <laughs> something that was both, that was frustrating at the yeah. time, but was also a kind of occupation. And I just, I just it watched guided, all of it. It must have guided the highs and lows of your life in that respect. And you're like, oh no, this fucking terrible program is on. Yeah. But, but, it, but it's staying on. Yeah. Like, I'm not. I was so bored I'm... so often. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me pay attention all the more when I really wanted to. Also, like, sitting through programs you were bored by, I mean, that must have... It must have done something to your to your brain in its own way, right? Like they must you must have learned some things you wouldn't have chosen to learn, or yeah, like yeah. experienced some things you wouldn't have chosen to experience. Like there's a there's a there's a there's definitely like something that comes from the self selection that we're mm. now all entitled to in this high like particular moment, mm. technologically speaking. The format that I find most resonant for me in terms of the digital to analog divide is mm. the fact that the way that I consume, say, the Guardian newspaper mm. is through the app or it's through the website, right? Yeah. And you choose your own adventure there. You follow links from your social media accounts that people that you know have shared mm-hmm. or on WhatsApp, on Twitter, wherever. The experience I had, by contrast, as a teenager reading the Guardian newspaper would be that you turn every page, mm. or at least most of them, to find the stories that you would choose to read for yourself. Mm. But along the way, you encounter other stories yeah. in the pages in between that yeah. you would never click on, yeah, yeah, that your yeah. social media feed would never share, and you end up finding out about things that you wouldn't have known were interesting to you, yeah, you wouldn't have yeah, known yeah, were yeah. part of interest, but, but, but end up being so for precisely that reason. And that's a particular format, a particular mm. type of, you know... Um, I'm trying not to use the word content here because I will just have to like <laughs> kill myself and everybody around me if I do. But yeah, a way of like consuming culture, I suppose mm. that culture is news media in this mm. context. But in that sense, yeah, of course, the like the format massively shapes the cultural resonance and importance of that particular cultural product. I guess like like our interests are more like siphoned in a mm. way now, yeah, yeah, yeah. but. I think what's interesting specifically about television in relation in relation to this is that, that I don't know whether you've seen them, but like satirical cartoons or like like a derision of like the family sat down watching the stupid box, you know, mm-hmm. or just passively mm-hmm. consuming this like rubbish on the television. But actually it involved so much negotiation, mm. trying to find something that me, my mum, my dad, and my two brothers would watch together. We didn't have TVs in any other room, and we didn't have mobile phones. And the mobile f- actually, and then when we did have mobile phones, all it had was Snake on it. So it was like limited appeal. Limited yeah. appeal. So it was like trying to constantly kind of negotiate these programs that we could all watch together. Interesting. It really took a lot what of a, work. What a compromise! I mean, was Poirot one such compromise that everyone agreed on? Precisely. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, precisely yeah. that. I mean, the idea of family viewing is a really interesting one. I mean, it's hard for me to say how that's changed through, like, how streaming and digitization has changed the idea of family, you know, a family watching a thing together because I don't have kids. Mm. I don't live with my parents. And I think my friends who do have kids, they're all like two. So they haven't... Yeah, they they haven't haven't, crossed that bridge yet. But the idea that you could sort of find a shared experience through something like that is, I assume is diminished, would be the obvious thing to assume based on how technology has shaped our lives, that most children would be able to go with an iPad to their room or whatever Mm. and, and watch something else should they wish to. And that idea of a collective negotiation over like what cultural experiences you're going to share is is presumably gone if i haven't seen them already then i'm sure they exist the kind of almost like a meme culture or whatever of like it used to be this and there's like a family sat around watching tv which used to be like the stupid box you know which we which used to be like looked on like 
in a bad light. And then that's contrast now with like, and now it's this. And it's like, the kids are on their iPads and like the parents are doing something else. And it's like, yeah, but that's how technology changes. You know, that's how technology moves on. So there was like fears over like people watching too much television in the 1990s. And now there's fears about people like using iPads too much. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I was. I wasn't sure if I really necessarily agreed that the '90s were a time where there was a real scare around like people watching too much telly. But I think maybe you are right. There, there were there were sort of reports coming out saying, you know, kids spend this much time in front of screens. Why aren't they playing out in the streets? Yeah, and, and like, it was exactly which, but, that. But that was and that was completely repeated when the internet became common in people's homes for the first yeah, time yeah, with yeah, dial-up yeah. modems and then eventually Wi-Fi. It's really Wi-Fi. predictable. But it, it, but all of that. Doesn't all of that come back to the same basic source of like of a snobbery mm. that I mean, there's definitely I mean, an anti TV snobbery is an a thing that is I wouldn't say it's necessarily always existed, but certainly all of my life. The idea that it's a lesser medium was you know, so I think probably originally came partly from people who thought that you know films and books were were an adequate sort of mm. way of storytelling, and TV was not the idea. Yeah, the idea of the idiot box is such a resonant one. I mean. A friend of mine has said that it's sort of a twist on that meme of like if you go back to someone a guy's house and he hasn't got books on the shelves and you know don't sleep with him. But <laughs> a, a female friend of mine has said that she's definitely been on dates with guys who are like, oh, you've got a TV in your living room, uh, like in your flat. Avoid. Like I actually don't really watch much TV. As a performance of their own of their just how fucking highbrow they are, oh, which no. is just so pathetic, isn't it? Really, really. Yeah. really <laughs> but that's like an, a massive red flag for her. It's yeah. just like if someone's if a guy says that, I'm just like, yeah, get over yourself, honestly. Mm. Like Well, I think there's like an assumption about the ways in which certain cultural products and forms are consumed and I think we need to query that word consumed Mm. because it's something that's used quite a lot at the moment it's something that you often see kind of we consume content right I mean this is everything is content it sort of doesn't matter what the format is Mm -hmm. partly because that intertextual transferability am I using the phrase Mm -hmm. right that intertextual transferability is so easy now it's so easy to adapt something to show it in a different form to download a pdf from the same browser that you've got the film queued up to Mm. next to the tv show Mm -hmm. you know like I guess I would slightly defend the word consumption because I use it quite a lot because I think it's kind of born of this particular cultural studies language which explicitly addresses the kind of economics behind cultural production which I think is really important to discuss you know I think it's important that when we talk about watching a television show we don't just talk about the fact that it is a television show although that's obviously very interesting and important there's obviously an economics behind that behind other tv shows that didn't get commissioned about the people that work in those industries so I think it is important to nod to the fact that behind these products there are economic practices that are important to critique and it's an important nod to the fact that these products don't exist in a vacuum but they exist in these complex economic structures I guess what it doesn't do is it doesn't query the role of consumers at all so it doesn't it doesn't kind of question the fact that like the TV was always on, sorry, the idiot box was always on in my house, but we weren't always watching it. Sometimes we were watching it, sometimes we weren't watching it. You know, but it's, it's like the ways in which I kind of engaged with that media were really varied. You know, there's like all of these practices. And I think someone who is really, really important to this discussion is, is Angela McRobbie's work on Jackie magazine. Mm-hmm. So I love this. I love it so much. Like, she's just amazing. But basically, she critiqued the idea of Jackie because, you know, they're all of these, like, girls' magazines, basically. And she was going through it and she was critiquing the narratives and she was just like, from a Marxist feminist perspective... From a feminist perspective, full stop, it is so depressing, the things that are in this magazine. Like, it is trash. And then she went and, like, met these kind of teenage girls that use Jackie magazine. And she realized that, you know, they don't just kind of read this and go, oh, yes, I must have must have a boyfriend in the same way that Jackie suggests. You know, they constantly took the piss, joked, uh, played around with the format. Like, you know, the ways in which they kind of used those narratives or they even used the format of Jackie were always really complex. Mm -hmm. They were never as straightforward as I read Jackie, then I am the woman that Jackie wants me to be. And is it, I mean, I can think of all sorts of different public discussions of particular cultural objects where 
the user or mm. consumer of them is completely written out. So, yeah. you know, something like violent video games, for example, yeah. like a tabloid hysteria around a violent video game will never actually engage with the reality of how teenagers playing it relate to it. Mm-hmm. shouldn't say that game is a good thing, that yeah. it, it is, and say there aren't valid criticisms, but the, it's always from the point of view of what that culture is projecting to mm. a particular, often reactionary mindset mm. that doesn't, as you say, as sort of Angela McRoby's light work unpicks, yeah, like unpicks, there, is, yeah. there is a complexity to the way that, that people, particularly if it's a collective reception, mm. like you're talking about like a group of girls who are actually discussing mm. what this content, that's always going to be very different to how an individual receives it in isolation. Mm. And that comes, you know, that's the same with TV, which, you know, after all, originally at least, mm. and I'm sure for many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in this country still, is a collective experience like mm. you know for all the kids may have their own ipads and stuff i'm sure i'm sure there is a lot of sitting around the tv to watch the same show yeah still going on well i guess it's um, this like thing that audiences are neither like immune nor completely passive to the messages that are kind of playing out in front of them mm. you know they're kind of they're resisting as much as they are taking them in in a way and i think there is so much and Actually, like video nasties, which really ties into this conversation about DVDs. Which is we should say we should say like an, was a nineties phenomenon, was it? Yeah, like well, I think kind of late eighties, nineties. There was this entire like this huge fear about massive uh, moral panic. Yeah, massive Absolutely. moral panic about um, about the ways in which young people were experiencing or kind of passively watching violence in horror movies, essentially. Mm. So there was this huge fear that, like, children were going to start murdering other children, which unfortunately played out in... I'm not saying that there was a correlation here, but there it was certainly something that was compounded by the James Bolger case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, real instances where children had done horrible things because James Bolger's killers had like watched one of those video nasties yeah, once right yeah, like yeah, I think that yeah. was, you know which was enough for the tabloids to draw a causal psychological yeah, relationship yeah. between the ability to do harm and mm-hmm. and so on but I think also like there's something to unpick here with the ways that we talk about the word consumption specifically because I think it like ties into a broader development of language that is like specifically tied into more people going to university. So you see a lot of like academic language, like punctuate everyday conversations all the time. So, Mm. and especially in the media, actually, when you like the media, you know, it's like, it's like, especially in the media, I'm not really being very specific, but when you read it. Firing shots at me. Yeah. (laughs) And you like read a news article and it doesn't talk about a story. It talks about a narrative. It doesn't talk about conversation. It talks about a discourse. It doesn't talk about like, you know, even things like you don't, you don't just make a playlist, you curate a playlist. Oh my God, don't get me you started know? on the every yeah the, the expansion of curatorial yeah. culture into everything we fucking do. But like in, <laughs> in, like, in, in the ways that these words are used in academic kind of critiques specifically, they often relate to questions of power. Like who mm. has the power? How is power operating here through like normal things like conversation? That, so like discourse is underpinned by structures, like power structures. But that's not really something that you get if you read like a, I don't know, like a 500 word article about discourse or something. So I think that's kind of why a word like consumption, it appears in lots of different, I don't know, newspaper articles. It appears Mm in lots of lots of the tweets you see on Twitter because it's a kind of shorthand catch all term for the ways it's it's a nod to the economics behind cultural production or the engagement with culture, yeah. but at the same time, it kind of asks. As no, many no, no, don't, don't, don't. Answers. At the same time, you've just made a very <laughs> robust and persuasive defence, which I never thought I'd be able to hear. But a very, very, never thought anyone would make like a really progressive kind of defence of talking about consuming content. But you've actually, <laughs> you've sort of half persuaded me that that's actually a legitimate conversation way of discussing culture. Because it actually I'm points, not saying it's the but, only way. No, no, I know you're not. But it's sort <laughs> just of, an important way. Well, it does, it, you're right. It points to the economic practices underpinning it. It points to the fact that, you know, an industry produces mm. a TV programme. TV mm. doesn't just fucking emerge out of thin air. Mm. Um, that workers within those industries are, you know, maltreated as they yeah. are everywhere else. That certain people get, you know, their voices privileged, mm. you know. 
And I think actually the discourse on Twitter and elsewhere and in the comment pieces that, you know, we all sort of share and hate every day, the discourse around <laughs> cultural production has in a sense got better. I, I think a lot of people will balk at that because there's just so much crap out there still. Mm. There are so many terrible hot takes. and, and There will always be terrible hot takes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Because that's... Know, that's- the cons- that's how we consume the media, yeah, yeah. right? Because news media is kind of run on these clickbaity articles, isn't it? Because that's where the money comes from, right? It like drives up people clicking on the site, which drives up ad revenue. I mean, I'd hate to say no, but that's know, how, obviously you're there right. is a nod to the complex <laughs> yeah. economic structures that underpin it, right? Yeah, yeah. So on that subject, like I think one of the things that fascinates me about the cursedness of like a massive, <laughs> massive DVD box set. <laughs> That, you know, physically it's huge, is what yeah. I'm saying as yeah, well. Yeah, it is big. Um, <laughs> and these are not, you know, technology was supposed to be becoming more and more nano as yeah. time progressed, but, like, that seemed to have skipped over the gatefold, fold-out mm. with extra booklets mm. and fucking Poirot wall charts. I mean, it doesn't have one of those. Well, we don't know if it does because you haven't opened it, but let's assume there's a Poirot wall chart in there as well like you could follow the World Cup with. Um, the experience I've had as, like, a 39-year-old in terms of, like, how cultural objects, music, I'm thinking particularly about music and TV or films here, mm. how that's changed in my lifetime in terms of the value, mm. uh, the, the, the cost value, sorry, the exchange value, is mental, frankly. Mm. There's, no, there's no other word for it. I was 14 years old in the mid-90s, saving up my pocket money or my money, well, more of my money from my newspaper round, mm. my first job in journalism, should by have the got, way. Should have got a job in Waitrose. Well, it didn't fucking exist then, <laughs> I don't think. Anyway, certainly not in Ballam, it didn't in that time. But I know Ballam is now very waitrose but that's by the by. I, uh, I would save up for fucking weeks to get an eleven ninety nine or twelve ninety nine album on mm. CD. CD, the, the cheapest, shoddiest format, honestly. And, and, you know, the cheapest plastic, like the, the markup cost, mm. like the, the record industry, the music industry has never had it so good as mm. the 90s. And, you know, I did some checking, but like the album OK Computer by Radiohead, which I now, you know, <laughs> not that fond of announcing that I bought because I, I don't I don't find Radiohead particularly. Not just bought, but really, really saved up for. <laughs> yeah, well, my first gig was a Radiohead gig. I went to see the, the, them on the Benz tour and I was literally 13. So, so anyway, cute. whatever. Um, but yeah, so Radiohead's OK Computer came out in 1997 and I don't have the fucking receipt, but I would have spent about 11 99 mm. absolute minimum, possibly up to 12 99 mm. on that CD album. Today, you can still buy it on CD, believe it or not. I'm quite surprised to even discover that. But you can still buy it on CD, should you, for some reason you want to. Brand new, £5.79. Now, that was over. That was 23 years ago. I mean, it seems like such an obvious thing to say, but think about the cost of living. Mm. Think about the change in how much in, in inflation. The, I mean, even like in terms of wages, I, I looked up like how much they have changed since, mm. since that album came out in 1997. Average wages for full-time pay in Britain have increased 60% Mm. between 1997 and 2017. In that same time period, the cost of this cultural product has halved. And that's just if you want the exact same product of the CD. If you want to listen to it any other way on YouTube for free Mm. without adverts because you've got an ad blocker even, (laughs) like, you can. You can also listen to it on Spotify, Mm. again, with adverts or without if you pay for the... The process, and I mean, this all sounds like super obvious to observe all of that. All of these changes have happened, but I think it's really interesting and important to think about how our relationship to the cultural objects mm. change mm. when the objects disappear mm. and digitize. So, because it, it felt for me as a teenager in the nineties that, and extend in, into the two thousands as a student mm. and stuff, that like accumulating cultural objects, primarily music, and to a lesser extent. DVDs were part of my identity formation at that crucial mm. moment in my life of like mm. late teens, um, particularly. Let's say it's 1996. I've got my copy of the NME physical magazine, which I bought. I'm wearing my Manic Street Preachers motorcycle emptiness Aww. t-shirt. I'm like holding my Seinfeld DVD box set. <laughs> got my copy of the Corrections by Jonathan Franzen, and like. I'm actually that doesn't quite stack up. I think it came out a few years later. Okay, let's say I've got Dave Eggers or something, <laughs> heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius in paperback in my hand. And like I'm all set. Here I am turning up at university mm. with like this set of things that is like, look, it's okay. I'm not insecure. 
here you can see all of my interests because yeah. I'm fucking holding them or even wearing them. <laughs> and, you know, you can go off to university feeling confident that I, you know, you know who mm. you are and stuff. Uh, because it says so. It says who you are on your shelves and, mm. in, and so on. And I just wonder how, like, so for someone who's grown up because you're in your 20s, like with the instant kind of clickability and like algorithm-driven, you know, discoverability of, of culture. Mm. Like, are, obje- are these cultural objects... I mean, clearly this Poirot box set is still important to you, but does that seem like an alien way of living, the kind of the 90s way that I'm describing, where, like, having a particular CD on your shelves... Like, I remember when friends would be, like, dating for the first time and would discover that, like went around to a girl's house and she had this album on CD so I knew it was going to be okay no one's going and looking you're not looking at your you know <laughs> your teenage bows like Spotify playlist or maybe mm. you are well this is the thing like there is a really strong affinity with like courtship and musical products I guess yeah, in a way yeah. like you know like recording like tapes for people oh don't get me started and, like, making tapes for making people tapes drawing, for people. drawing yeah, their yeah, like yeah. artwork and stuff yeah 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 and like <laughs> so basically when you, I was did you I mean because no one's going to curate a playlist for you or maybe they will well, but I like, that, know, that's like, just so lacking well I don't me. know like I feel like when you do start like seeing someone you do quite like you're like quite I want to know everything about you I want to know like mm-hmm. what I want to know what fucking music you like because you know if it turns out that you're the kind of person that's gonna <laughs> listen to status quo <laughs> indiscriminately <laughs> I need to know now as long as it's all right to listen to them discriminating <laughs> <laughs> but you know you, I think people do have that with like Spotify playlists now um, so one thing I'd like to talk about briefly is just this transition moment that mm. this DVD that, that was the 2000s I think mm-hmm. that's probably the right mm-hmm. way to like frame it because your DVD box set comes out in 2009 mm-hmm. I would say essay a guess that like by about 2015 it's useless <laughs> is that fair not useless yeah, but yeah, like yeah. you know by, two, by, my lap- by 2015 I couldn't I probably couldn't play discs right my laptop I bought in 2015 doesn't have disc, a disc yeah, drive yeah. in it for example but yeah the, this moment of the 2000s I think historians will look back on, well, we're historians, we'll look back on mm. it as a period of real flux mm. and a sort of last gasp for a lot of cultural products in physical form. Mm. The reason why then this object for me is so cursed is DVDs just speak to a particular time. They're like a cultural rel- relic of a particular time, right? And I think that for me, the DVD in its like in its form is slightly cursed well it is cursed because that's just not a form that exists anymore it's just not like modern it's not what you know i could just watch every episode of poirot on some kind of streaming site yeah but i I guess an opposite i mean is it fair to say sorry to interject but is it fair to say that like i think there's a certain melancholia that is associated with obsolete Mm. objects i mean again this is a walter benjamin thing that Mm. like you know reevaluating and dredging up objects which were once full of utopian possibility or hope Mm. or like because they encapsulated technological progress Mm. and civilizational progress when they are then rendered you know Mm. the disappointment that crashes down in this sort of aura around the objects Mm. once it's rendered obsolete by technological progress like literally five years later um they are infused with like i think some of the melancholy of like the failures of consumer capitalism mm. to satisfy us, to make mm. us happy, ultimately. That mm. they they encapsulate this promise. This promise is never fucking fulfilled. Mm. These objects always end up in a charity shop. Yeah. Everything does. And they just signify... Sorry, sorry, like, sorry to no. bring a bit of a doubt <laughs> Everything there. does, even you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess they just, like, signify waste in a way, don't they? Yeah. Now, yeah, because yeah. there's... There's I, an environmental I, component to yeah, that too. Absolutely. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't yeah. like, I couldn't play it even if I wanted to. But I think, in a way, on my sliding scale of cursedness, this DVD is cursed, and I mean that, Sam, if you're listening, in a very affectionate way. That obviously <laughs> it just means it's a very complex cultural product. But I think, really, on a sliding scale of cursedness, it's nowhere near the level of curseness of like something like Netflix, which is like actually right. terrifying the ways in which you can watch every single episode of Poirot from start to finish. I think it's on there. It's on Amazon or like Prime. Amazon, yeah, any of these kind of like streaming mm. sites. I think the thing is, the reason why I, I didn't really open this DVD case 
is that it broke with the routine. It broke with the ritual of how I engage with Poirot, which is not to watch it as a DVD, which is, I'm not watching it for the episode, really. It's not really about what Poirot gets up to. It's about the ritual of it being a Sunday, of of the negotiation in my family house, that this is one of the few things that we can watch together. Mm. And I actually haven't told you what, like, so like my cousin, my brother's cat is called Herc after Hercule. That's so cute. He bought me like, I've got so many Hercule Poirot related things that I haven't even brought up. Like I've met him twice. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I might have met him three times. On the third time you dragged him back to your like Poirot relic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've got like two signed pictures of him. I've got his autobiography that is signed. I've got like, my cousin Tom used to like, whenever he'd see things about David Suchet and the Metro, he'd like cut them out and like hide them in my room. (laughs) It's just like a joke that went too far and now like I've got it but I love it like I'd never not want any of this stuff Mm, but mm. I think the thing is is that it's associated with that particular ritual Mm. you know of like watching in a particular way and the DVD was cursed because I didn't want to watch it from start to finish I didn't Mm. want to watch a box set of it I wanted to watch it occasionally sporadically as a treat but really as a treat that I didn't admit to myself as a treat on the TV. And I think that while the DVD occupied that particular place of like, you can watch this from start to finish, Netflix does that and these streaming sites do that, but I think in a far more insidious way. And maybe that's just like old man shouting at cloud. Sure. But... But what is this podcast for if not that? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's really interesting to me as well that the likes of Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, iPlayer, etc., and the culture that surrounds the mm. streaming revolution have co-opted mm. the obsolete language of the box set. Yeah, so yeah. they will they will be labelled as box sets. The discussion mm. on uh, sort of TV review kind of sections of newspaper websites will be about you know what what box set are you binging? Yeah. What's your next box set? Mm. That's a physical object mm. that you're describing. It's a physical object exactly like this Poirot DVD mm. box set that is now filled with this kind of mournful mm. loss, sense yeah. of loss and like obsolescence. Yeah. I think these platforms though, they like shark content from much better sites. <laughs> they shark content from like other places and then they sell it back to you. They repackage it for you. And you spend most of your time trawling through, trying to find something. And it's actually quite stressful. That's not what Poirot's about to me. Poirot's about naps. Poirot isn't about, you know, trawling through Netflix, trying to find something. You start watching something, it's rubbish. You stop watching. And before you know it, you spent four hours doing nothing. Poirot is about lots of ad breaks <laughs> where I'm not really paying attention and naps and that's <laughs> it. It's like, and I think you once said this to me, you once coined, you once said to me, the tyranny of choice. Yeah, I that, was just thinking that phrase so that makes mm, sense. Like the anxiety is the tyranny of choice. Yeah. And I feel like that when I watch these streaming sites, this is going to make me sound like really like... Grandma, yeah. Grandma. I'm not scared of change. Mm. But what I am saying is that like these forms... They're the enemy of comfort, right? If this is... You're describing a comforting experience. But they package themselves as comfort, you know? Netflix and chill, all of this kind of stuff. But I don't think... Just because they package themselves in that way for convenience purposes, I don't think that's the actual outcome. I think they end up actually really... Mm. I don't think they're I don't think they're helpful or conducive. Well, I think, you know, maybe if they are pushing the idea of the coziness of of Netflix and chill Mm. as much as obviously that's a euphemism, but Mm. they, they are doing that precisely because they know that the experience in reality is anxiety inducing it's not comforting it's not the reassurance of knowing that at 9 p.m on sunday evening on itv that it's poro it's time to sit down with the family and have a clementine and (laughs) i don't know did you did you have yeah this is is another conversation really but like Uh, we never had clementines but we did have like poor poor uh, yeah they did make it as far far north of the equator (laughs) as north london on that note i think we should um end here in the absence of poirot gathering us all around to tell us who made this episode we're gonna do it for you i'm dan hancocks i'm kasha t um and if you Fancy buying us a Poirot box set, another one. Sort of indirectly. Yeah, indirectly. Please don't literally do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do not take Kasha at her word. Yeah, I've already got one and I haven't opened it for 13 years. <laughs> but what you could do is mm. you could go to our Patreon, Cursed Objects Patreon, and just offer to chip in a little bit every month for which you'll get episode guides and other missives from us. And hit us up on social media as well for lots of very cool art deco graphics. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. bye. <laughs> bye.